So we are continuing our series called Far From the Shallow today. We're in the book of Genesis, and I thank Corey for doing last week's narrative on Cain and Abel and some of the different dynamics that are going on in that story. Today, I just want to take kind of a parenthesis, and I want to consider this story of Cain and Abel and Eve kind of from a different angle. So we are looking at the deeper issues in the book of Genesis. Most studies in the book of Genesis are often easy, cheesy, cotton candy, and consumeristic in some way. But if you delve into the book and you dive into the deep end, there is a lot of things that are instructive for us. But what we have learned so far in the book of Genesis is, number one, it's not historical in the modern sense of the word. It is filled with legends that communicate something to the nation of Israel and to the rest of humanity. Now, the individuals in Genesis may be historical, or some of them may not be historical, but what they represent is something that is an ongoing attempt for the nation of Israel to understand something about herself because the book of Genesis was written or at least finished very late. And what we find is as they're coming back into the land from exile, they are defining themselves again and who they are to be in the ancient Near East as well as the greater area of what is called Mesopotamia. Now, we have already looked at the creation account, and we understand that it is not scientific in our sense of understanding a scientific account of how the universe was created. But one of the things I did not share yet, and this is a deep dive that we don't have time to get into today, it is believed by most Old Testament scholars that the reason that God rests on the seventh day after creation is because the entire cosmos is considered to be his temple. And so what it is, is the creation account is like an ancient liturgy that is reflecting upon the fact that in God's creation, there is a time to work and there is a time to rest. There's a rhythm, six and one, six and one, six and one, And God models that because the entire universe is a part of his temple and the earthly temple and the earthly tabernacle in the Old Testament is to be kind of a reflection of what the greater picture is of the entire cosmos being the place where God inhabits and he dwells. So as we get started today, I want to ask you a question. And this will kind of set the stage to help us into our text this morning. Do you believe George Washington cut down the cherry tree when he was a boy? Do you think that is historical? Now, the legend about George Washington has endured a long time. And the story goes like this. He was six years old when he received a hatchet as a gift. I don't know if it was Christmas or birthday, but nonetheless... He takes this hatchet and he chops down a cherry tree and when his father inquires about it, he says, I cannot tell a lie, father. Yes, I did cut down the cherry tree. Now, ironically, this story about honesty, being honest with uh, himself to his dad, was actually invented 
by one of Washington's first biographers by the name of Mason Locke Weems. So after Washington's death in 1799, people were continuing to have interest in George Washington and some of the stories of his childhood. And some of the lessons of George Washington, that is the great virtues that he embodied, were often reflected in the stories that were told. So Mason Locke Weems decided that George Washington and the virtue of honesty needed to continue to live on, so he created this legend about George Washington cutting down the cherry tree so that it could become a part of the cultural heritage. Now, these many years later, we will see this um, ongoing legend reflected in comic strips or political cartoons or things like that. The longevity of the cherry tree myth is demonstrative of American ideals and George Washington's legacy. That was the purpose of it. He was not trying to deceive people in making up this story. He was trying to embody something that George Washington was an example of by allowing it a continued, enduring part of a cultural heritage. Now, if we can understand that, we can understand what's going on in Genesis. There are certainly some people that will be bothered by the fact that Genesis is not a textbook, nor is it a cookbook to a better life. And while the people in the story can be historical, they are more like parables that we are to interpret. Over a hundred years ago, there was a German theologian by the name of Hermann Gunkel, and he said, a child indeed is unable to distinguish between reality and poetry, and so it loses something because of that inability. And then he went on to say this, that pastors like myself or teachers of the Bible would do well to help people understand that even though some of the things that are in Genesis are legendary, it is something that helps us to understand the bigger picture or the greater story that is to endure. So Gunkel came along and understood that Genesis reflects other similar cultural stories that were found in the ancient Near East. We looked at one of them with Enuma Elish, the Babylonian account of creation. And next week, when we talk about Noah and the flood, I'm going to give you a heads up. There is another uh, story of a flood in a number of different cultures. And what we find is that the Noah story reflects some of the things that were being told in other parts of the ancient Near East as well. So that's all kind of backdrop. So what do we want to do today is, if this is about Israel understanding who they are, and if Adam is proto-Israel, because we see parallels between the actions of Adam and the conduct of the nation of Israel, then what is the purpose of Eve? Well, it seems to me that in chapter 3, verse 20, when the scripture was read a moment ago, that this phrase here in chapter 3, verse 20, lives beyond the simplistic understanding that Eve is the mother of all humanity in a physical sense. We said a couple of weeks ago that the uh, Human Genome Project has shown that it's virtually impossible that all of us came from two people. 
So if that's not the case, then what is the purpose of this statement? It says, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, think about that for a moment. Perhaps Eve plays a much bigger role than simply being the first woman on planet Earth. Maybe there is something deeper that is going on than the simple account of what happened when two of her boys, Cain and Abel, uh, get into this moment where Cain, in his rage and in his anger, murders his brother Abel. Well, what we find is that there's a lot of things that are going on in that story. I find it fascinating in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, which we read earlier, that it says, Do not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. Now listen, it goes on. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds, or as in the NIV, it says his actions, his deeds were evil while his brothers were righteous. It wasn't the simple act of murder. It's his entire way of life. So when we think about Cain, we think about his pride, his anger, his envy, his violence. And then we begin to think about how he is exiled. He is uh, sent away and he is carrying all kinds of emotions like fear, anxiety, shame, and guilt. Maybe Cain's fear is to also illustrate for all of us that when we, in our pride and arrogance and envy and jealousy, do things that hurt other people, we live with the consequences of fear, anxiety, shame, and guilt as well. There's this dynamic, though, that is introduced in the Cain and Abel story that we'll see next week in the flood story, and it seems as though humans are prone to violence. And even though that's the first murder, the bigger picture is this, that God will need to cleanse the earth from its violent tendencies. So having said all of that, what do we learn from Eve? So if you take this understanding that Eve is the mother of all living, maybe she symbolizes on this mother day, Mother's Day uh, the loss of her son and the hope that she will have when she has her third son that she will name Seth. So in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, this goes on and it says, Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and named him Seth. For she said, now listen, listen, God has appointed for me another child instead of Abel because Cain killed him. She began to look to God and she began to trust God. And when she does give birth, she says, by his name, God has appointed this son for me so I can go on living, so I can get on with my life. So when we think about a wounded mother, a wounded mother in the Genesis text becomes symbolic of wounded mothers, I think, across time. So in a few moments, you're going to hear a Mother's Day litany read by Corey and Jen of different women in the Bible. And these different women all have to find a way 
in their woundedness to move on. And the way they do that is finding the way of wisdom. So today, the title of my message is A Wounded Mother's Way of Wisdom. And we can learn because she symbolizes something. She symbolizes that in life, there are things that will happen that we cannot prevent as parents. And at times, we will need to let it be, okay? So Corey and Jen just sang for us that classic tune from the Beatles. Paul McCartney's words resonate with what we're talking about this morning. We need to let it be at times to move on with our lives and find new hope in spite of our woundedness. And we see very early here that God wants the human race to move in the way of wisdom, not in the way of violence. So today, I want us to think just for a moment about the different women in uh, the text of the scriptures. And there's a variety of them that they're going to tell you. But what you're going to see is we're going to put up a painting by, a by the name of a man by the name of William Blake. And it is the pain of a wounded mother so profoundly depicted because what we see is that first conflict between Cain and Abel. And as Abel lays on the ground, one of the things that uh, Blake is doing in his artistry is seeing the intertwining of the hair of Abel and the hair of Eve. So when you look at this painting, as all of these references are read, um, I want you to notice that uh, we see Eve's naked back and her vulnerable nape. They're bared to us as she arches over Abel's body, causing her hair to spill upon his chest. And her hair is knit into Abel's hair because she has literally tied herself to him. She is suffering the death of her child, and he is protecting her in her vulnerable moment of loss, and we are unable to see her face because he, this painting is not allowing us to intrude on the moment. Think of the profundity of that for a moment. When wounded mothers need to have those moments where the world does not intrude upon us with all of their so-called wisdom and advice, there's this precious moment between the mother and the child. And it is here that the image of Eve plays an important part in the story because she is the mother of all the living in a figurative sense. She is the mother figure for all future generations. And in particular, this wounded mother will have this moment of grief over Abel but she will be able to move on. She will continue to find hope, and it comes to fruition in the birth of her third son, Seth. So at this time, we want to go to the Mother's Day litany that uh, Jen and Corey are going to read for us as you observe this painting. I am Eve. My son Cain killed his brother Abel because he was jealous. We remember mothers whose families are torn apart by jealousy, fighting, and misunderstandings. I am Sarah. 
I am an old woman when I gave birth to my son Isaac. We remember mothers who are older, but who still bear the responsibility of raising children and grandchildren. I am Rebecca. I helped my favorite son Jacob to trick his brother Esau out of his birthright. We remember mothers who mean well, but make mistakes. I am Moses' mother. I hid my child so that he would not be taken by the government authorities. We remember mothers whose children are taken or stolen from them because of commercial interests or government policy. I am Pharaoh's daughter. I found a baby in a basket and adopted him, raising him as my own child. We remember mothers who have adopted children and mothers who have had their children adopted. I am Hannah, the mother of Samuel. I was one of many women who had difficulty becoming a mother. We remember mothers who, after many disappointments, are finally successful in being able to conceive and give birth to a child. I am the mother of David. I watched as my son grew from being a shepherd boy to become a great king. We remember mothers who rejoice in the achievements of their children. I am the widow of Zarephath. When my bowl of flour and oil is gone, my child and I will die because our land is gripped by famine. We remember mothers who watch their children suffer and die from malnutrition because of famine, drought, flood, or war. I am one of the mothers from Bethlehem. King Herod's soldiers murdered our children for no reason. We remember mothers whose children are tortured and murdered by soldiers and militia for political reasons. I am a mother of Salem. I wanted to take my children to meet Jesus, but his disciples said not to bother him. We remember mothers who would like their children to know Jesus, but are discouraged by modern-day disciples who don't like annoying kids. I am the Syrophoenician woman. Even though Jesus referred to me as a dog, I pestered him to cure my daughter, who was very ill. We remember mothers whose children are sick or disabled and who will try anything to cure or help them. I am the widow at Nain. Jesus raised my son from the dead, so I would not be left destitute. We remember mothers who, as widows, or for other reasons, raised their children alone. I am the mother of James and John. I asked Jesus if they could have a special place next to him in heaven. We remember mothers who believe their children can do no wrong and deserve special treatment. I am Mary. I watched my child suffer and die on the cross. We remember mothers who watched their children suffer and die. I am one of many nameless women. I was not able to be a mother even though I would have liked it very much. We remember women who, because of various circumstances, are unable to become mothers. So welcome back. So on this Mother's Day, we are seeing the importance of Eve in giving humanity another chance. First of all, the heartache of a mother is reflected. Uh, anytime there is something that happens to a child, and I think that 
there are stories that we could tell over and over again, and they were hit, hinted at in the Mother's Day litany that was read. There is something that goes on that is earth-shattering, and through the chaos that reigns internally inside the heart of a mother, and the external violence that brought about that situation, what we can find is God is continuing to remake us in his image and what he wants to do is to go back to the beginning of creation. Now we're going to see next week that he will need to cleanse the earth from its tendency to turn to violence all the time. But that will be for next week. So first thing we notice is the heartache of the mother. But the second thing I think we notice is this tells us something about what God expects of us as we build our house, both as a human race and as individual families. We are knit together by blood uh, in our family. And what we find is that we are knit together by blood as a human race. And there is to be the reflection of honoring and cherishing and loving and protecting one another. And what we find in the Eve story becomes a story for the rest of humanity. What are we doing to protect others around us? What are we doing to reduce violence and the way of violence? I find it interesting as you go through the Old Testament, there are a couple of things that happen. If we were to continue the story, and if we were to continue the genealogy of Seth, and of course that's what was in uh, chapter 5 of Genesis, and Corey gave to you that little chart last week of the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, we find that Israel is being pointed toward an oncoming hope that finds itself not in David, but in the son of David, Jesus Christ. So th let's think about for a moment that genealogy as it comes down to King David for a moment. So you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob becomes the patriarch of the 12 tribes, and the 12 tribes of Israel find themselves in Egypt, and Moses leads them out of Egypt. And after they get out of Egypt, they clamor for an earthly king, and God acquiesces and gives to them first Saul, he didn't turn out all that great, and then King David. And King David is kind of like the Camelot in the history of the nation of Israel. But it's interesting to me that King David wanted to build a temple. And God said to King David, he said to him in 1 Chronicles 22 verse 8, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood in my sight on the earth. Isn't that interesting? As great as David was, and he was even called a man after God's own heart, God says, no, 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 no. One of the ways of your rule is the ongoing presence of violence. Therefore, you're not going to build a temple for me. And then he says, there will be one that will build a temple for me. And, and it's assumed that that is going to be King Solomon, the third king. And it goes on in Chronicles and says, A son shall be born to you. He shall be a man of peace. And I will give him peace from all his enemies on every side. For his name shall be Solomon, which means peaceful. And I will give him peace and quiet to Israel. 
in his days, and he shall build a house for my name, and he shall be a son to me, and I will be a father to him, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. That's First Chronicles 22, verses 9 and 10. Now, ironically enough, as well as Solomon gets started, he kind of goes off the path, and he intermarries, and he has a thousand wives and concubines, and things kind of go astray, and then the uh, nation of Israel splits apart into two tribes, the tribes to the north and the tribes to the south, and so on and so forth. But when Jesus, in his ministry, walks by the temple, now remember the temple is kind of a microcosm of God's reign, okay? The, the temple that is the cosmos. Incidentally, um, when we think about a president taking residence in a White House, his work is not finished, it's just getting started. So God takes up residence, and it's reflected on the seventh day. He's rested in the sense that he's inhabiting this creation. And as he's doing so, he's getting started and moving humanity in the right direction. Now stick with me here. I know this is a confusing message. Solomon never completely accomplished that. So David's greater son, Jesus himself comes, and as he's walking by the temple one day, his disciples say to him, look at the greatness of this building. And Jesus has the audacity to say this, well, if you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And they go, well, how can anyone rebuild this temple in three days? It took years and years and years and in Solomon's day, it took a multitude of slave labor to build the grandiose temple. But Jesus begins to turn from the physical to the spiritual. And he's saying, I am now the temple. And as I am the temple, the three days reflects upon his resurrection from the dead. And it is through his resurrection, we find a renewed hope for humanity. And in his resurrection, we can get back to that pre-Cain and Abel existence because his resurrection power, his resurrection love, his resurrection forgiveness, his resurrection hope allows us to treat each other as brothers and sisters. Remember what Abel said, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to that is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. We are all caretakers of one another. And Eve becomes the mother figure of overseeing the many mothers in successive generations that are taking care of their family. And she reflects in many ways God, who is the great father and mother figure. Remember, God is not male and God is not female. But let us make God a man in our image reflects upon the fact that he cares over his children like a mother does her hens. So how does God want his house to be built? Not on violence, but on the value of all human beings. And in naming her third son, Eve voices her faith in God's love, mercy, and provision. The name Eve denotes the collectivity that is common to the behavior of all living things. And that is when we treat each other 
in such a way that we can bring love and mercy, forgiveness and acceptance to one another. Then we are really living. But if we are dealing with each other in violence and hatred and anger and so forth, we might still be breathing physically, but we are actually dying spiritually and emotionally. So Eve is named as the mother of all the living And it is more than a simple expression of genealogies. It is the expression that we are all knit together as one in the human race. To seek to destroy some part of it is ultimately to kill ourselves in the process. There will be times in our lives where out of our anger, out of our hurt, out of our grief, we will want to get even. And I think God is saying, just like Eve, let it be. Let it be. Let me take care of it. There will be times in our lives when we will need to let it be by entrusting tomorrow into the hands of God who is able to set a better way forward. So Jesus might be saying to you and to me today, let it be. Let it be. And come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. This open invitation, let it be, come to me, sit with me. And in a moment here, we're taking the Lord's table, sup with me, come to my table. Jesus builds God's house around a table, not a fable of redemptive violence. And he tells us to put down our knives and to pick up our spoon and to realize that this is what's best for humanity and ultimately this is what's best for us. So we come now to the Lord's table to receive grace that is needed in our time of need. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you eat in remembrance of me. And after that, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the new way of being the temple of God in the world. This is the new way and it is established by my blood. So if you have your bread and you have your cup, let's at this time partake together. Jesus with his disciples came and took a piece of bread. And as he took a piece of piece of bread, he broke it. And he reminds us to come to the table, to sup with him, and to allow us to be nourished in his grace and in his love. Let's eat together. And after supper, he took the cup He lifted it up and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together as the body of Christ in remembrance of the Lord.
So thank you for bearing with me today in this message. It was a little bit different. It was a little bit complicated. But I think what we can understand is that Eve reflects for us, in many sense, what all mothers want for their children on this Mother's Day. They want their children to be safe, to be loved, to be honored. They want their children to be successful and make a difference in the world. And Eve wanted that for all her children. It fell apart, but she found renewed hope in the God that would appoint to her another son. So for our benediction today, I have written this. God, your love surrounds us like a mother's love. We rejoice that we are your own beloved children, nourished by you, guided to see not only with our eyes, but also with our hearts. Fathering and mothering God, empower us to share the light of your justice with all your children. Make us eager to share your love with all that we meet. May God bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and may he give you his peace. Until we meet again, have a great week.